Well, our text on this Palm Sunday morning is the gospel lesson which was just read from Luke 19. You have the outline there in the back of your bulletin. It's an account, or the beginning of the account anyway, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as he begins the very dramatic, momentous, consequential last week of his life. It's been said that the Gospels, these long documents we have called the Gospels, that the Gospels are passion narratives, that is, suffering narratives, with long introductions. The Gospels are all about this part of the story. So Jesus' humiliation and his suffering, which was embraced from the very beginning, right? From the moment he took the form of a servant, From the self-emptying of himself as the second person of the Holy Trinity in glory to assume our human flesh of which we heard in the Philippians reading. That suffering and humiliation is now reaching its culmination. This is the end of the Passover pilgrimage. The last week of Jesus' life. The pilgrimage would have started in in the far northeast of Galilee. And as you read Luke's gospel, you see that Jesus and his band of disciples, they've been walking through the Judean desert, climbing the whole time. It's a long, kind of steep walk. And the last leg of the journey would have started at Jericho. Jericho is the lowest city in the world, at least it was at this time, like a thousand feet below sea level. It's in the Jordan River Valley. It's east of Jerusalem. So here's the river. Here's Jericho. Here's Jerusalem. And verse 28 tells us that Jesus is going ahead. He's leading them as they go up to Jerusalem. And near the end of the journey, they have to climb up the Mount of Olives or the Mount of Olivet. A mountain which is charged with messianic significance Because it's mentioned in the prophet Zechariah that that is the place where the Messiah will appear. So they draw near, the text says, to Bethpage and Bethany. These little towns, these little villages, they're about one mile from Jerusalem. Bethany sits on the east side of the mountain. It sits on the Jericho side. And once you pass it, you're ready to crest the summit. And then Jerusalem, the beloved but apostate city, comes into view immediately from the top of the mountain. At the bottom of the mountain is the Kidron Valley. And then across the valley, Jerusalem, sitting on a hill of its own. Just think of how exhilarating it would be to get to this point in the journey. It was springtime. And it wasn't 35 degrees. I checked this morning. It's 70 degrees in Jerusalem now. The city is swarming with pilgrims from all over the land and all beyond. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims spiking the population all ready to celebrate the Passover. And for Jesus... This is a key, dramatic moment in his mission. And he orchestrates the whole thing. 
up until now, he would often tell people not to disclose his messiahship. My scholars call this the messianic secret. He would, he would heal someone and say, don't tell anybody who did this. But now, he's going to take a deliberate, self-conscious step and publicly tell the crowd, I am the Messiah. I am the king of the Jews. So we'll look at how he does this under two headings that I'm calling the palms and the passion. Passion here means suffering. Palm Sunday is also known as Passion Sunday. And the palms and the passion cannot, as we will see, they cannot be separated from each other. So first, the palms. Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into a nearby village, find a colt which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it to him. Seems kind of strange to us. He's just going to go commandeer somebody's colt. But it's not. There's a cultural background here. It it's, it's, was known in the Roman Empire as the Ang- Angaria. The Angaria. It was a kind of Roman Empire, like, primitive postal system uh, for royal dispatches, for moving dispatches from place to place, or for shuttling dignitaries around from one place to another, generally on horses. Right? And the supply of horses right, for the Angaria, by the public, was mandatory. Like someone shows up at your house and says, I need your car, it's mandatory that you give it to them. It's not optional. And the privilege in the Roman Empire was extended to rabbis. So Jesus' commandeering of the animal is not unusual. And in verse 31, he says, if anyone asks why you're untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. He assumes that will be sufficient. As a rabbi, under Roman law, he has a right to the animal. Nevertheless, he respects, right, he respects the earthly owners of the beast. He wants an explanation given to them. And the explanation, it functions something like a password here. The Lord has need of it. So they go... And they find everything as Jesus said. The script is followed perfectly. The owners of the cult, the text tells us, say to them, why are you untying the cult? And there's an important play on words here. The word for owners of the cult is actually lords. When the lords of the cult say, why are you untying it? The disciples following Jesus' instructions say, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus is very subtly, very gently here, asserting his lordship over all things. I own the donkeys on a thousand hills. They are the lords of the cult. He is the lord of all things. He is the creator of heaven and earth in human flesh. So in the middle of verse 35, the disciples throw their own cloaks their own coats, on the colt. So the clothes apparently are serving the function of a saddle on this animal. Now that's odd. But there's something more happening here. The background for this, believe it or not, and it comes from a number of places, but you can see it in 2 Kings chapter 9. 
2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu is appointed king. And the people place their garments down under his feet. So the people here are publicly acknowledging Jesus as the messianic king. And this becomes clearer at the end of verse 35, where we're told that the people, notice this, put Jesus on the donkey. He doesn't mount it himself. Not that it would be that hard, but he doesn't. He's enthroned by the people. This is a very simple, unadorned coronation ceremony. And we're told that as he went, they spread their clothes on the road as well. And that's a cheap, makeshift red carpet, if you will. Right? It's an atypical pathway for Israel's king. Now, remember this. Remember, Jesus had walked the whole way. I don't know what it is, 40, 50, a lot of miles, a couple dozen miles. He'd walked the whole way. There's absolutely no reason for him to ride the last mile or so. In fact, they had climbed from Jericho up the steep ascent on foot, and now it's on the visible descent down into the Kidron Valley at the base of the city. It's there that he decides he wants to take a little ride on a donkey. So this has nothing to do with being tired. Right? This is a drama that Jesus is conducting. And Matthew and John tell us expressly why he did this. He did it to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. The same Zechariah who said the Messiah was going to appear on Mount of Olives. Behold, your king is coming to you, Zechariah 9, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, you know, while we have a kingly, it's a kingly messianic scene. But it's not typical worldly kingship. Right? Victorious kings, right? Triumphant kings, the dignitaries of this age, they ride in on war horses, not on rented donkeys. They have limos. They have handlers. They have secret servicemen. So Jesus is taking the mantle of messianic king, but not the kind of king that many in Israel, even among his disciples, expected. But if you took a poll and said, messianic king, what images does that evoke? It's unlikely to evoke then, and perhaps even now in us, Lowly one mounted on a beast of burden. Right? They expected, at least we know some sectors of Israel expected, a militaristic Messiah. Like a political Messiah who would slaughter their enemies. A Messiah who would remove immediately, would liberate them from the Roman yoke. That's what they wanted, right? They were chafing with the geopolitical situation of being sub subordinate and subject to Rome. And the Messiah was going to come and liberate them and restore their national pride, fight for their liberties, right? Restore Israel's preeminence. And instead, they're getting something different. They're getting this low, broken-hearted, bruised, suffering servant who comes proclaiming peace. 
and as we'll see, even to his enemies. So this is a prelude then, a very vivid one, to what we will see on Good Friday. He's enthroned on a donkey. But he's not yet at the bottom of his humiliation. He, will, he who's enthroned on the donkey will be enthroned on the cross. So often this is called the triumphal entry. But it's really an ah triumphal entry. right? It's an inverted triumphal entry. This is a king, a messianic liberating king who comes not to slaughter, but it turns out to be slaughtered. So what we have here is the redefinition, the redefinition of dominion at its core, of kingship at its core, of authority at its core, of conquest and rule at their core. It's not just that this is the path to kingly triumph. It most certainly is that. It's that what we have here is a redefinition of what triumph and what glory in this age look like. And this is often missed. It's not a prelude to where we get to the point where now Jesus can really exercise the kind of authority we want, where he kicks some people around. This is the redefinition of what it means for glory and kingship in this age. In the other Gospels, we're told that the, the crowds, they lay down palm branches. Right? That's a sign of the king's victory. This is the victorious one riding in. And you know where else we see palms? We see them in Revelation chapter 7, in the heavenly liturgy. There's a scene there where multitudes are before the throne of the Lamb in heaven. And they're clothed in white. And they've got palm branches in their hands. And they cry out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So what we have in our text here is the humble, if you will, B-grade, lowly origin of that glorious scene. But we should make no mistake. This scene here of kingly humiliation, and by the way, there are a few in the crowd that are even picking up that this is a scene of kingly humiliation, but we'll come back to that. This is the necessary prelude to that scene of heavenly glory. So what does the crowd here do? Remarkably, they quote from Psalm 118, which is also a psalm full of messianic overtones, a wonderful psalm. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So the crowd has enthroned Jesus with their clothes. They're mounting him on the donkey with their palms. And now the crowd, they acclaim him publicly as the royal Messiah, and they use the language of Israel's holy scripture. This is the coming of the messianic deliverer and king. So, if you look at Psalm 118, you'll notice something. Just after it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, it says, take the sacrifice and bind it to the horns of the altar. So that the palms laid out for this king, and with him being bound and enthroned, ruling and suffering agony and humiliation on the altar of sacrifice. The palms lead to the passion. The palms lead to the passion, which is our second point here. Second point. 
So the first thing Jesus does, often Palm Sunday stories stop right there, by the way. They don't read Luke's account of what happens right next, which is part of the account of Palm Sunday. Right? What happens is then Jesus draws near to the city on the donkey. And he sees the city. And the first thing he does is he weeps over it. He takes up a lamentation that they have not known the things which made for peace. So this is a, indeed a strange kind of conquering king. Right? It's a weeping warrior. Right? They wanted some other kind of warrior They're going to get a weeping warrior. This is the second time in this last part of his life in Luke's gospel that Jesus has lamented over this city. The prior lament, just a little earlier in Luke, is in Luke 13. And he says this. Jesus says this. O Jerusalem. Notice the O. It's it's full of pathos, right? O Jerusalem. And then the doubling. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem like words which evoke an almost inconsolable longing. We get a rare glimpse here of the Savior's love and pity. How does he feel about the bloody city? Again, this part tends to be edited out of the Palm Sunday story. How does he feel about the bloody city, the city that he himself has pronounced a woe on? A city that he has charged, get this, with all the righteous blood from the foundation of the world. A city which he has described as the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He tells us how he feels about it in Luke's gospel. How often, he says, I wanted to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He applies to himself this motherly image of a hen protecting her chicks from danger with her very life. He yearns to gather them, to say to their enemies, you cannot harm them without tearing my flesh. He wants his life to be given for theirs. And notice... This is not like a spike or an emotional flush, you know, a moment in in our Lord's emotional life. He says, how often I have wanted to gather your children together. So we have on this donkey an illuminating glimpse into the depths of love in the meek and lowly heart of Christ without which no one is fit, right? No one is fit to pronounce judgment or woe. Yet, in his compassion, he still knows it's too late. It's too late for the beloved city. So in verse 44, he says that Jerusalem, having squandered her chance at peace, will be left in rubble. He says, you and your children will be torn down to the ground. Not one stone Not one stone will be left that is not thrown down. The Romans will devastate the city and the temple in 70 AD. And so it turns out then 
to reject this strange, inverted, ah, triumphal entry is to submit to the brutal, triumphal entry of the Roman armies. Here, we have no lasting city, the writer to the Hebrews says. Not Jerusalem, not Newburgh, not New York City, not L.A., nowhere. Here, we have no lasting permanent cities. But we seek the city which is to come. The destruction of the first Jerusalem means we are looking for the second one. The heavenly Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven for God. The Jerusalem that sings, and Lord willing, we'll shortly hear the men's choir do this for us. The Jerusalem that sings is what Paul calls the Jerusalem from above. So the palm part of Palm Sunday is over, and Jesus already in tears, right? Through tears is entering into the passion, into the collision that awaits him in Jerusalem. So, I know we've all heard the story of Palm Sunday a lot. But of course, a question to ask of any text is, okay, there's the so what question. What does this text say to us? It turns out a lot. At the very least, there's a warning here against superimposing our own agendas, our own ideas of rule and authority and kingship on Jesus' agenda. Our own ideas of how we should treat our opponents, even our vicious opponents, are challenged to their very core here. Right? I always used to tell my kids when they were little, and then they would tell me later when I would violate this principle. I used to tell them, weep more, pontificate less. Right? There's a principle here. Don't pronounce any judgment on anybody unless you've been broken in tears for them. How about that? Weep more, pontificate less. The silence will be great. Like the disciples, right? We think we have Jesus wired, but we always have him like half right, half wrong. They wanted a king, but they didn't want this king. They didn't want a king who came in weakness and in humility. And they were not, they were not, as we often are not, willing to ask the hard question. This is the hard question. What in this age is the nature of kingship? Is the nature of leadership? Is the nature of authority? Is the nature of hierarchy? What's the nature of authority? We just assume these things. We assume everybody knows what that is. Jesus says, no, no, I'm going I'm I'm to reconfigure these things. In the shadow of the cross, they're all remade. What are they in the face of this example? What does it look like to lead, to exercise authority, to be in charge, to interact with enemies? Even the disciples, right, even the people in the crowd, and it's quite a mixed crowd, right? They're willing to lay out their clothes and heap up praise outside the city gates, but we all know. Right? We all know that almost all but the closest of them fled in his hour of trial and execution. I'm not saying it's the exact same crowd on Friday as it is now. I don't want to make that mistake. But we know that in general his disciples fled. Ask yourself this question. you got people raising palms saying, Hosanna! Rejoicing, dancing around, right? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Does anyone notice that the one on the donkey is weeping? 
Where's that part of Palm Sunday? And not just weeping in general, weeping for his killers. Like weeping for the city that's about to tear him in part, the city upon which he himself has pronounced a woe. I suspect there's almost no one in the crowd catching the irony. Palm Sunday, taken out of context, can be sort of festive. You know, you have little kids and they're walking around with palms. It's not that festive if you're sitting on the donkey. And it looks very different by Thursday night. So the long road that Jesus walks, the road of discipleship, gives us plenty of opportunity, all of us, to sort out our motives for following this Jesus. Right. The Spirit asks us in this text, what kind of disciples are we? What kind of king do we want? What are we doing in this crowd here anyway? Are we willing, as Peter says we must, to walk in his footsteps, to imitate him as he trod this public path, right? this path of non-retaliatory, non-threatening, non-reviling, suffering love in the face of all this unjust provocation, state-sponsored unjust provocation. Right? This is where Peter says the imitation of Christ is. There are things Jesus does that we can't do. So we don't imitate the whole array of things he did. The Gospels and the New Testament call us to imitate, in particular, his taking up of the cross and his behavior under Pilate. That's what Peter says in verse 2, is the pattern left for the Christian life. So we're followers of Jesus, and that means we follow him all the way into Jerusalem, then to Golgotha, and then, and then, and only then, nail-scarred into the skies, into heavenly glory. So Jesus' pattern of conquest is our inevitable path, and it's the way of the cross. I know we hear this a lot, but the way of the cross is the way of Christian existence in this life. And it does not occupy a central place in our thinking or our affections. We know the way to glory, the way to kingship is through the cross, but I think we tend to forget that the cross has redefined what glory and kingship are to look like for us. Paul puts this beautifully when he says, we have resurrection power already. You already experienced the power and glory of the resurrection, but we do so in conformity with his death. In the next age, that won't be true. In this age, resurrection power is in cruciform shape. But we resist this. Our natures resist it. It's not natural to us. So we avert our gaze and we substitute other good, decent, moral ways of achieving our goals, of engaging the world. Sometimes it seems like any way, any way but the way of the cross, the way of weakness, the way of self-emptying, the way of turning the other cheek, the way of loving our enemies, the way of humiliation and shame, the way of marginalization, the way criminals are treated. We have zero interest in that. So, Jesus alone, alone, bears the cross for your redemption. Glory be to God. There's this gracious exchange or substitute. But everyone then participates in and bears and takes up his or her cross, or we cannot be followers of this one. 
Here's another thing Jesus said earlier, just a little earlier on this journey, on this way up to Jerusalem. He's gathering a crowd, right? He turns to the crowd with his anti-church growth strategy, and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother and mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, and yes, even his own life, what kind of a way to address a crowd that you're assembling for your ministry is that? Wasn't he supposed to say, turn to the crowd and say, now we all know that the biological nuclear family is the fundamental building block of culture and society. Right? And the Romans have some legislation which is attacking the nuclear family, and I would like all of you to lobby. Or whatever. This is the most counterintuitive thing you could possibly say. Or why doesn't he say, look, of course I want you to love your family. I just want you to love me a little bit more. I'd like to edge out your family in a horse race. Hate here doesn't really mean hate. It just means love less. So as long as your love for Jesus just barely noses out the love for your family, you'll be good. No. He's saying your love for me and my kingdom in this way should be so radical that it looks like by comparison you hate your family and even your own life. It's an astonishing statement, right? It's so bizarre that we, we just tend to, we don't know what to do with it. Do you know what Jesus says something like that? If you don't hate your wife, your children, your house, your land, your possession, you can't follow me. He says something like that seven times in the Gospels. Seven. Right? So it's a time for us. It's an opportunity for us as followers of this king to take stock. Right? To reconsider the cost of discipleship. That's why Palm Sunday comes at the end of Lent. In this crowd, hailing their king with palms. Again, we don't want to hold these people accountable for not understanding the whole theology of kingship. I don't want to be too harsh on the crowd. But it is also true that the crowd is confused. If we are going to hail him on this Palm Sunday, and we must hail him as the messianic king. We must hail him. But we have to hail him embracing the form of kingship as he is radically redefining it. We imitate his public witness in our public witness. I've said it before, I'll say it again this year. I think the way, the way to drill this home to us would be if churches, instead of picking up palms on the way out, picked up three long nails. That's what it means to follow him. Now, none of this should make us morbid. Yes, it's sober. But this is the wellspring of gladness. This is the paradox and mystery of Christian existence. Right? This king who substitutes for you, who goes ahead of you, who stands with you and around you and underneath you, this king has in utter naked humility and weakness overcome the darkness and overcome the world. Otherwise, this would be morbid. The cross pours light out from the bottom, from the darkness. So this is not a work. Jesus is not calling us to a new work. This summons of this text is something we embrace with good cheer. Let us be of good cheer. Let your heart take courage. Jesus is a kind... Look, look how he's treating his enemies in this text. Do you think he's going to treat you 
any worse than he treats Jerusalem in this text? Look how he's treating his enemies. What do you, how do you think he treats his disciples and his friends? He's a kind and a gentle and a patient and a forgiving and a compassionate king. He's full of lavish mercies. We should let our hearts take courage and be a good chair. You know why? His yoke, which claims the totality of our lives, is easy, he says. You might think, how can I love Jesus and hate my family? It's easy, he says. My burden is light. Sharp as the call is to follow and to die. You know what? It is a grand liberation. It is a monstrous burden to be your own God. To constantly be trying to establish your own just, righteous standing before God. To try to follow Jesus in your own moral strength. It is a monstrous burden to be your own God. Because sin and fear and self and all of our grasping, clawing, they are cruel taskmasters. Jesus comes for our liberation. So be of good cheer. This is the way to glory. This is the shape of glory begun in us. The light of Easter, the light of Easter will soon shatter the darkness. And it's because that has happened. That makes the way of the cross for us the way of triumph. So be of good cheer. Rejoice with the crowd today, but rejoice without illusions. Join them saying, blessed is the king who, redefining kingship, comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.